0: Good morning. I want to welcome in all of our family joining us on the live stream um, this morning as well. It's always a blessing to be able to share God's word with you. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 12. We've made it to John chapter 12. We, we have a, a, another wonderful text before us this morning as we are beginning this new chapter in the gospel of John and we'll be covering verses 1 through 11 this morning and uh, I want to begin by first reading our passage and then um, we can go verse by verse and discuss it so let's begin in John chapter 12 verse 1 this is the reading of God's holy and living word It says six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus Um, we've now reached a turning point in John's gospel as um, Jesus' public ministry has now finished and from this chapter chapter 12 and moving forward John is going to hone in and focus on the final week of Jesus' life death, burial, and resurrection. Ingrained in the Gospel of John are what I would say two overarching truths. And one of them is that you would believe. That you would believe. We are told in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Remember, the signs were miracles. Miracles. Which are not written in this book. Jesus did thousands of signs. John only picked these specific few. Which are not written in this book. But these are written. The ones he put in are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. The gospel of John is often referred to the gospel of belief. Or the gospel of believing as believe and believing are written nearly a hundred times in 21 chapters. And yet, the other overarching theme we see woven throughout the gospel is unbelief, unbelief. In John 1, verse 11, it said that he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That by and large, the Jewish people received them not. That though this is the gospel of belief, its setting mostly takes place in unbelieving Israel. And so we're often confronted with these intense scenes of division in John, as the Lord himself is very divisive. In fact, we witnessed this division yet again last week in our verses. Notice the division that occurred in between verse 45 and 46 of chapter 11. Verse 45 said, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. They they witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus, a, a man who had been dead four days back to life. And we see this group of people believe. But now look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some believed in the Lord Jesus Christ right there on the spot. But some of them ran into the arms of the Pharisees, men who they knew were plotting to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Like nobody else, the the Lord Jesus Christ evokes this antithetical extreme of love and hate, um, devotion and rejection, worship and blasphemy, belief and unbelief. Christ always divides. He divides the sheep from the goats the weak from the tares, believers from unbelievers, the saved from the lost. In this passage, which relates the story of Mary's anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the themes of belief and unbelief become especially clear once again. We see first the worship of Mary. Mary, which embodies faith and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, followed by the cold, calculated, Cynical response of Judas Iscariot which embodies unbelief and the hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas represents not only unbelief, but he also represents a fraudulent belief. A false belief. Those who are looking to get just enough of Jesus in them to get something out of him. Today this would be many confessing Christians who are in it so that they can have a better life. That Christianity or faith in Jesus Christ is all about health, wealth, and prosperity. These are the imposters that are on your TV sets, not because they love Jesus, not because they love the church, but because it's a great paying gig. They're businessmen who are selling Christ. Jesus calls them false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Judas, we see that not all who follow Jesus follow him for the right reasons. And Jesus has exposed this kind of hypocritical faith several times already in the Gospel of John. For example, we'll just look back quickly as we read John chapter 2, verse 23, which said, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing and if we were to end our reading uh right there we would think praise god there are people turning to faith in christ it says many believed in his name but notice what it says in verse 24 but jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them now why would jesus not entrust himself to them we continue for he knew all men he knew what was in man he knew what was in man Jesus was saying, you are not seeking after me because your heart is full of me. You're moved only by what you can get from me. Very disturbing. Jesus knows the heart of man. He knew all men. He knew what the motives of men were. He knows what is in man. Now, did they believe that he was a miracle worker? Of course they did. Of course there was no denying the Lord's miraculous works. But that is not a faith that can save. They knew things about him. They did not know the Lord Jesus. And we saw the superficial faith again following that incredible miracle of the loaves and the fishes back in John chapter 6. As Jesus supernaturally fed thousands of people, possibly 15,000 men and women, that this should have been a, a clear sign that Jesus was no mere man. But rather, as they had claimed earlier in verse 14 of chapter 6, that surely this is the prophet who was to come. That this was in fact the Messiah who was to come into the world, but instead of the people confessing Jesus as their Lord, we see the following day the people wake up and they realize, uh-oh, Jesus has left us. And so they quickly jumped in their boats, and the scriptures said that they went seeking after Jesus. And again, at this point in the story, we might be thinking, all right, this is it. They're seeking after Christ. Uh, This this huge crowd is, is going to believe. Tens of thousands of them. But when they arrived, verse 26, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus was nothing More than a bread making machine to them. So again we see Jesus saying. You are not seeking after me. You just want what I can give to you. You you seek me that I might be of, of some benefit to you. And so there is no such thing as a pseudo believer. In which a pseudo faith resides. Many people have and will follow Christ or believe in Christ for whatever self-benefit that they might receive. Their motive is impure and they will inevitably turn from the truth as they abandon the truth of the gospel. And as we read further on in John chapter 6, many of them did just this. After Jesus proclaimed to be, remember, the bread of life that has come down out of heaven and that he was to be their all-encompassing treasure in life. Jesus said do not work for the food that perishes but for the food which endures that the son of man will give to you. He was saying to them I am the living bread. The bread that your fathers ate they ate it and they died. I am living bread if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever. And then Jesus goes real tight on them and he says unless you eat my flesh. And drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And what Jesus is saying is, again, is is I will be your all-consuming or not consumed at all. I will be the very source of all that you think, all that you say, all that you do, and all that you believe your, whore, your, your, your entire life, or I will be no source to you at all. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever is not with me scatters. This is very black and white. There is no gray here. There is no gray here. Well, when the people heard this, you'll remember in John chapter 6, they said in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And as a result of this, we find out in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And as we move forward, even later on in this chapter, chapter 12, there will be many people who will praise Jesus at his triumphant return, who within just a few days will then hail for the Lord's death. So we see this throughout the gospel of John and our verses today continue with this scene in our passage today. We'll see the, the action and the motive of a true and genuine faith of Mary. And in contrast to the actions and the motives of a pseudo faith of Judas Iscariot, the action and the motive of a genuine faith always seeks to praise and worship God in humility and in love. It does not count the cost where a pseudo-faith seeks the benefit of oneself, the elevation of one's own platform, and like a stockbroker, is always counting a return upon one's investment. Now before we jump into this text, I I must warn you that we are now entering into the most monumental week in the history of the world. In John, we are now just six days away from the cross. We are six days away from the thorns. We are six days away from the nails. We are six days away from the hatred. We are six days away from the spear. We are six days away from the sin bearing. Six days away from the loneliness of of being God forsaken. Six days away from the cross. But before we jump in and start this week, let me remind you of how it is that we've recently arrived here. It was just a few weeks ago that we were in John chapter 10. And in verse 22, we mark the date there, noting that it was the Feast of Dedication. We know this feast today as Hanukkah. And that occurs, of course, in in the month of December. Um, As chapter 10 closes, um, we see Jesus elude the grasp of the religious leaders who are now seeking to seize him. Jesus uh, flees to the remote village of Bethany, where John the Baptist was first baptizing, and John chapter 1, just, be, just beyond the Jordan. Jesus continued his ministry for a number of weeks in and around that area. Chapter 11 then opens and we see Jesus uh, get word that his good friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus leaves the Bethany that is near the Jordan. And arrives at the other village Bethany that's located just two miles outside of Jerusalem. This is where we met Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Word of this miraculous sign spreads like wildfire all throughout Judea. Some of the people who witnessed it tell the Pharisees what Jesus has done. The Pharisees then seek out the help of the Sadducees in order to put an end to this man, Jesus, before everyone believes in him. We read last week that they convened a council. It's Decided by the Sanhedrin and the high priest that year, Caiaphas, that Jesus must die. And from that day on, they collectively planned to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. We next see Jesus travels north as he could no longer walk among the Jews, as we read last week, as he traveled to a city of Ephraim. He would have been there for approximately six weeks, spending intimate time with his disciples. He would be training them and discipling them, getting them prepared for the ministry and the coming work of the Holy Spirit. Then after that roughly six-week period, Jesus would leave Ephraim. He would then circle around through Jericho, and he would return to the city of Bethany. And according to Mark fourteen three, Jesus and his disciples would go to Simon the leper's house. This is where our scene takes place today. We are six days away from the cross, and this is where we pick our story up in John chapter 12. I've broken this passage down into six easy sections for us, so let's walk through these together. The first sections are verses 1 through 2, and number one is the supper. The scene opens with a a celebratory supper. Let's check this out. Verse 1 reads, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So just stop there for a moment as we get some of these interesting details down here. So, Jesus is coming into the town of Bethany. This would have been Saturday, the the final Sabbath before the Passover, six days away. And Lazarus by now has probably become quite the spectacle. Uh, No doubt he's become the talk of the town. All right? And to give us kind of greater clarity, John describes this as Bethany where Lazarus was from. We have two Bethanies there. So, So he puts that in so we know, ah, This is the one close to Jerusalem. And this is a very bold move by the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples. And I say that because if we go back just one verse prior to this one in John 11, verse uh, 57. It says, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let him know so that they, they might arrest him. This is an arrest warrant. This is an arrest warrant. For the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather than turning him in. Like some criminal. The Lord's friends in Bethany. Unashamedly. Organize a supper in his honor. The Lord Jesus is not concerned or worried. That they may lay hold of him. No he goes straight into the danger zone. Just two miles from the holy temple. And the very next day will be Palm Sunday. When he would fulfill the Old Testament prophecy given it in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 when he would boldly enter Jerusalem triumphantly as its king lowly riding on a colt a fowl of a donkey he is the Lord Jesus Christ who is sovereign over all things he is not fearful of man or of the enemy or anyone who would try to oppose him no he will allow himself to be seized when it is his hour and at that very moment that he's decreed and not a moment sooner it is the lord jesus christ who then stares down the barrel of this bad news and nothing shakes him nothing worries him for nothing will happen outside of his sovereign control and perfect will and that alone should give us great peace and should inflame our trust in him so moving on to verse 2 verse 2 says so they gave a dinner for him there martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So as I mentioned earlier, we can follow the same story in Mark chapter 14 and in verse 3 and Matthew 26 verse 6 actually tells us that they're at Simon the leper's house. This is different than the account in Luke, which happens earlier. This is a, a different story. But John, Mark and Matthew are telling the same story. This is at Simon the leper's house. We are told that Jesus, his disciples, as well as Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have all been invited to this supper. Um, Though others were were probably serving also. Martha's service on this occasion is primarily mentioned and directed at the Lord Jesus Christ and was commendable for two related reasons. One, it was motivated by a loving gratitude of him. And also by a desire to generously honor him in the best way that she knew how. Martha was a doer. Martha loved to serve. We notice here that there's no rebuke here versus the other incident where the Lord rebuked her. Martha, Martha, Martha. Right? And and like Martha, all Christians are to be engaged in selfless service. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant." and declared of himself, I am among you as the one who serves. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus will say in verse 26 of chapter 12, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Although it tends to be overshadowed by Mary's dramatic act of worship, Martha's humble service on this occasion was no less commendable and pleasing to the Lord Jesus. Let's talk about Simon um, for a second. He's known as Simon the leper, um, quite possibly perhaps because he was once a leper who was healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Leprosy was beyond the, the limited medical knowledge Um, They had at the time. Um, It's safe to assume he's no longer a leper. Or they would do as our government asks. And keep to social distancing. They wouldn't be gathering at his home. Uh, So Simon the leper hosts a dinner. The Greek word used here for dinner or for supper. Is the word depenion. And it means more than just a dinner or an evening meal. But rather a ceremonial meal. Or a banquet. It's the same word used in Mark 6.21 when describing King Herod's birthday banquet. It's also used in Luke 14:12 and the parable of the guest, and also in Luke 14:16, in the parable of the Great Supper, when Jesus was referring to the heavenly banquet, a divine dinner ceremony. So this supper has been intentionally planned. It is being prepared to be a celebratory dinner. For the Lord Jesus Christ. They no doubt wanted to show their love. And their affection. And their honor. For all that the Lord Jesus had done for them. And can you imagine what dinner conversations would have been like. Uh, You have Simon a man healed from leprosy. It it was considered a death sentence. Certainly in society standards. uh, You you were ceremonially unclean. Uh, in, In Leviticus 13 you were demanded to live outside of the camp and by yourself this was not something to be messed around with And years of sores and scabs instantly healed at the very word or touch of the lord jesus christ he was a man who was physically and spiritually made completely new in christ jesus and then of course we have lazarus (laughs) the man walking out of the grave with grave clothes still on A man who had been laying in the cold, hard grave, dead, rotting. Four days in the tomb. Did they share their experiences with the group? Lazarus, what happened during those four days? Uh, What was it like walking out of the tomb? Uh, Did Lazarus even speak of it? Uh, We don't know. Uh, But the time had come to celebrate. And this was a celebration and a worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over this special supper. This was a special occasion. Let's move on to section number two. And, uh, and the worship. The worship. In verse three we read about the worship. As Mary anoints the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three says. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment. Made of pure nard. And anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary takes a pound of this oil by Roman standards or measurements. This would have been 12 ounces. Uh, A very large amount of a very costly perfume of pure nard. Um, Nard was a fragrant oil and this was extracted from the root and spike. Hence, some of your English translations might have "spike nard. Um, It came from a small plant that was native to the mountains of northern India. Um, the high cost are derived partly of the great distance then in which it had to be transported. Um, there were some cut varieties of this nard, but this was not one of them. John notes this is the expensive ointment made from pure nard. As a matter of fact, the Greek word he used to describe the value of this nard is pulu utmost it means of great value very costly and very precious the word actually speaks of the oil's tremendous personal value Um, this word is only used three times in all of the new testament Um, it is used in the parable of the costly pearl in matthew chapter 13 verses 45 to 46 where jesus says again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, pollutmos, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This word is also used in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 in verse 7, where it says, So that the proof of your faith being more precious pollut than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen, indeed. So this was not only a very rare, extremely expensive oil and perfume, but this was very precious to Mary. It is very likely that it carried a a value, a sentimental value to it, possibly of that of through an inheritance or a special family heirloom to her. And Mary begins to anoint the Lord Jesus first on his head, as told in in Matthew and Mark's gospel. But here in John's gospel, we're told in verse three, that she also anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And I might add that she did not use it sparingly. She busted it open, because John adds, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. John's note that the fragrance filled the house is a kind of vivid detail we would expect an eyewitness to recall. It also testifies to the extravagance of uh, Mary's act of humble devotion and of worship. As Mary covers the Lord's feet in the oil in this most affectionate manner, she begins to wipe his feet with her own hair. She, she took her hair down, which was um, not recommended during this time. You only took your hair down in private with your husband. And we see the, the all-out worship and vulnerability of Mary. And we once again see Mary at the Lord, at the Lord's feet. All three times we see Mary in the scriptures. Mary is at the Lord's feet. And in the greatest act of worship towards him, she's exhausting this very expensive and precious jar of oil and massaging the oil into the flesh of of Christ's feet and literally using her hair to do so as she wipes it in and clean and dry. This is an overwhelming outpouring of emotion and devotion and love Towards the Lord Jesus Christ. This is pure, sacrificial, unadulterated worship of the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't go unnoticed. In fact, the Lord loves her back and declares this noble act of worship be spoken as a memorial to her. This is amazing. If you were to read in uh, Matthew's version, Jesus says of Mary in Matthew chapter 26 verse 13. Truly I say to you. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed. Watch it. He's going to connect us to the gospel. Truly I say to you. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed. In the whole world. What she has done. Speaking of Mary. Will also be told in memory of her. Wow. The Lord honors those who honor him. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30. As the Lord declares. Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This is the great honor of Mary as she demonstrates her heart's gratitude in anointing and worshiping sacrificially her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was the right action, and this was the right worship. That takes us to number three and the question. Enter Judas and the question of Mary's act of worship. Let's see what happens. Verses 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, enter Judas. One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The stunned silence that must have followed Mary's startling And unexpectedly, act of worship is suddenly broken by this voice of a raised protest. The conjunction word here, "but," that starts the verse, introduces us to the strong contrast between Mary's selflessness and Judas' selfishness. And did you notice he is described here in two ways? First, we see he's called a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word "disciple" simply means a student a pupil, a learner. This is who Jesus is, Judas is. This is how he's being identified in the word. But also, notice secondly, his intention. He who was about to betray him. That word betray is the word dot It's this word used in Mark fourteen forty four when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas betrays the Lord Jesus Christ with a kiss. The word actually means to hand over, to deliver, to betray, and to abandon. Judas, one who was very close to the Lord Jesus in proximity, one who had spent roughly three and a half years with the Lord Jesus day and night. He had eaten with the Lord Jesus Christ, witnessed healings, uh, presumably shared laughters with the Lord and his disciples, uh, tears, prayers. The other disciples did not know this of Judas. He is a disciple, a student, a learner of the Lord Jesus and is intending to hand over, to deliver, to abandon Jesus. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. This is the exact opposite of what we see of Mary. This is unbelief cloaked in belief. This is the pseudo-believer living in the midst of believers. Someone disguised as a believer going undetected as a false believer. This is the result of 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, which says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the result. This proclaiming believer is an unbeliever, and he has just been revealed to his true self. And in the context of this particular chapter, just six days until the cross. Six days. Nobody knows about Judas except Jesus Himself, who is omniscient. It was back in, two, in chapter two we just read that that Jesus Himself knew what was in man. Right? He knows the heart. He knows our motives. Jesus knows all about Judas, all about him. So in verse five, Judas proceeds with this dishonest question. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So 300 denarii would have been an entire um, year's salary for the common worker. This was an extensive amount of of worth, of money. And Judas is giving this notion of concern for who? The poor, right? And so on the surface, this seems like a very noble idea, maybe a noble thought, seems to be real honest and a valiant thing to say on behalf of those who are in need. But in reality, this is the most dishonest, disrespectful, dishonorable attitude and posture you could ever give to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to be fair, we should mention how did the other disciples respond to this? Well, in their lack of discernment and in their lack of knowledge of who Judas truly was... Mark chapter 14 verse 5 tells us that they scolded her. They rebuked her. They criticized her angrily, this word means. They admonished her sternly. They tore into her. Look, whenever someone speaks negatively, there are always others there who are ready to be drawn into it. Right? the the, the old nature of man likes to complain and as the Bible says murmur we like to murmur under our breath at people (laughs) human nature likes to criticize because it makes us feel superior so be on guard against these tendencies that we still have it's really Titus 3 2 speak evil of no one don't slander avoid quarreling be peaceful and gentle showing humility to all men so Jesus uh, well, Judas wasn't about any of that, <laughs> but but, what was his reason for leading and starting such an upheaval? Uh, let's look at that in our fourth section as the motive. This is the truth that is given to us in verse 6. It says, he, Judas, said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. To what was put into it. Judas is described here as a thief, and so is the devil. Seeing that much money elude his grasp infuriated Judas. Judas possibly disillusioned by the Lord's impending death, decided at least to get some financial compensation for the last three years he had wasted on the Lord Jesus. And because he was a thief verse six and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. In other words, he used to steal. He was, uh, he's been stealing all along. He used to extract the money slowly in a very obscure way from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that it says Judas had charge of the money bag, this would have meant that Judas was probably the first treasurer of the Lord's church. The first treasurer of the Lord's church was a thief. He would have had the trust of the Lord Jesus and the other disciples. He would have been their most trusted man, their CFO, their public accountant to to perceive the trust to have this responsibility. He would have have perceived himself to be very devoted, a very loyal, a very trustworthy man in order to have this kind of responsibility. But the first treasurer treasure of the Lord's church turned out to be a thief he put himself in a position to get the most benefit from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and not in a spiritual sense Mary was at his feet Judas was in the money bag he was self-benefiting self in the self-elevating sense Mary's love for Jesus was a mystery and an embarrassment to Judas selfish people cannot comprehend the unselfish That the native language of love was generosity, one writer said. It was something that Judas could not comprehend. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That takes us to number five and the rebuke. The rebuke of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And as we see this in action, how the Lord is very protective and he has a very firm response for his old friend Judas. Check this out in verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Wow. The Lord Jesus says, Leave her alone. He's saying, Stand down. He's calling off the dogs. In Mark um, fourteen verse six, the ESV translate translates it a little more accurately. It uses the word trouble rather than bother, not to bother her. Jesus says, "Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her?" And this word, in the figurative sense, means to hit, to strike a blow so hard that it seriously weakens or that seriously weakens and debil- or debilitates. This is a verbal assault from the twelve led by Judas. On the pure worship and behavior of Mary. So, how does the Lord respond? With a very deliberate command. Back off, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. This word beautiful in Mark 14, 6 means an outward sign of an inward good. Noble, honorable character, good and trustworthy this is an attractive good it's a good and motivates and should stir others to embrace true worth worship how are we as followers of the lord jesus christ supposed to worship jesus said in john 4 verse 23 through 24 the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, this is the the ethical, moral, protective, and loving defense of Mary, who was worshiping in spirit and in truth. This is the result of genuine worship from a a genuine believer with a genuine faith and love for the Lord Jesus. And at the end of verse 7, Jesus goes on to say, So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Huh. Apparently this kind of perfume was sometimes um, used in burials. As far as we can see from the context, Mary is doing this beautiful form of worship simply because she loves and values and appreciates the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. But here our Lord connects what she did out of the expression of love to his burial did, did she know that was she doing this with the burial on her heart and on her mind Jesus had said he was going to die um, was she prepared that when he did die to anoint him in, in this way and didn't want to wait until the end because she didn't know whether or not she could be there or not um, how was it going to happen? When was it going to happen? Was she anointing him beforehand while he was alive to express the, the lavish nature of her love because she was afraid that she wouldn't have time to do it at the end. We don't know that. Did, did she think about that? I, I don't know. I tend to think so. We don't know, but that Jesus interpreted what she did as anointing him for his day of burial? speaks highly to that and by saying that jesus declares that he will die and that he will be buried it's it's possible in matthew's account jesus said this in, in matthew 26 verse 12 in pouring this ointment on my body she has done it to prepare me for burial it's really interesting did she know she was preparing the lord um we don't know she doesn't say anything But Jesus said, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Sounds to me the Lord Jesus thinks that that's what she was doing. In Mark's account, in Mark 14, verse 8, Jesus said, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Jesus sees in this the symbol of, of the reality of his coming death and burial, and and the love and the anointing of Mary—just this, what a beautiful thing that this becomes. And, and then that's not all. Back to John chapter twelve, verse eight. Jesus continues, "For the poor, you will always have. Um, oh, did I skip that? Yeah, there we go. Um, For the poor, you you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Wow." Um, simply what Jesus is saying there is is you will have many opportunities to to give heed to the poor and certainly the disciples have been doing this Um, but you will not always have me we see here Jesus accepts this beautiful act of worship from Mary and he uses it to teach his disciples what the greatest form of worship is the, the humble, lowly Personal worship to God that's what we should all desire is to 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 yearn to worship our Lord in spirit and in truth then to finish the rebuke again I love what Jesus says there in four, in 14 9 our Lord adds something that John doesn't include G- Jesus said and uh, Jesus said and truly I say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's, that's Not only does the Holy Spirit lay out what she did in detail, but the Lord gives it significant spiritual meaning, attaching it to his very death. The Lord says this is going to be a permanent, everlasting memorial to the love of this woman and her love of me. This is the sacrificial love Mary had for Jesus Christ and by the way at that very moment when Jesus had said that uh, the gig was uh, up for uh, Judas um, the, the very next verse in Mark's account says in Mark fourteen ten, then Judas Iscariot who was one of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray him so when Jesus said leave her alone she she has done this symbolizing my coming death Judas Knew it was over. Judas knew that the Lord was going to die. There wasn't going to be any future for Judas. There was going to be no more money coming in. But he wanted more money. And all he had to do now was to fulfill the command that was given earlier in John chapter 11 verse 57. That if anyone knew where the Lord Jesus was he should report it. So that they might arrest Jesus. He figured he could do that and make some cash on the way out. So he left. There goes Judas. Well, we move uh, from uh, the rebuke there, and we close out um, today with the, the last heading and the responses. Um, our, our, our last few verses show us various responses from different groups as people are still responding to the word that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 9 covers the first group. It says... When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom, they had, whom he had raised from the dead. In, in, in the Gospel of John, the terms the Jews is often referred to, uh, is saved for the religious leaders. But here it's referring to common people who were learning that Jesus was there in Bethany, just two miles outside of the Holy City. Remember, six days till the Passover— Possibly over a million people are pouring in and flowing into the city. This word in the Greek here for large crowd, it means many, a high number, great in amount. News of the sensational miracle had spread and, and the curious crowd wanted to see both the miracle worker and the one whom he had raised. Every sign that, that Jesus performed served as a testimony of, to his deity, that Jesus was God. Lazarus was a walking, breathing, thriving man and would have been one of the most compelling signs that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. So we see people are coming to see if if what they have heard is true. And the funny thing is, is even the enemies of God who opposed Jesus Christ did not and they could not deny that Jesus was a miracle worker. There were too many witnesses. There were too many people who had experienced the healings firsthand. People have been touched by the hand of God. Now they've come to see the evidence of that dead man walking. So that's what one group, the large crowd, and how did they respond? The next day they will shout Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest, and celebrate Jesus as their king. But by week's end, sadly, many of them will join in on the chant, Crucify him! Crucify him! As many of these people were lukewarm concerning Christ. Some believed, while others stayed neither cold nor hot. One day they believed, the next day they were under the yoke of these apostate religious leaders, and they would follow their lead and say, tell him, crucify him. And many of them did. But some did believe, some believed. Here's the last group in verses 10 through 11. It says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. (laughs) Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. All right. So here we see pure evil of the religious leaders. Whenever there was any sort of momentum starting for Christ, we we see the religious leaders step in and, and squash that, Fragile seed. It's it's like the parable of the seed being dropped on on rocky soil. It's just enough soil and just enough to to start to sprout up, and then the rocks or the sun or someone's foot comes crushing it and kills that that little seedling. And here the chief priests, who have already plotted to kill the Lord Jesus, expand this plot as now they have planned to kill Lazarus as well. And why are they plotting now to kill Lazarus also? because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing him the dead man's alive many believed and so Lazarus then became um, an undeniable walking testimony to to the Lord's messianic claims and unable to count this um, counter this supernatural testimony they sought to then destroy the evidence Lazarus became evidence a material witness it's like the mob get rid of him Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 18 has much to say about these religious leaders. These are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and a hand that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. Um, Proverbs 1, verse 18. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. These were self-centered, sinful, blind guides leading the blind. And they do not know that they are laying waste to their own lives. And that their worship of themselves rather than God will be their great demise. But why? Why do they fear? Why do they fear in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, verse 11 told us why because on the account of Lazarus many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus they were witnessing that shift that spiritual shift this crowd of people were were going away from them and starting to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then there's your great divide once again that there would be some who truly believed who came to Jesus by true saving faith and then there would be these like the religious leaders and like Judas Iscariot who had never had genuine saving faith, but rather had always claimed allegiance to God for whatever self-benefit that they could get. This is the pseudo-faith in order to receive popularity or power or acceptance or wealth or control or status. Jesus asks us, why are we here? Why are we here? Is our faith self-seeking like Judas, or is it sacrificial like Mary's? A genuine faith seeks to worship God like Mary did in all humility, pouring out your very best for the Lord. Or do you have a faith that is self-serving to serve some kind of self-benefit to you? Is faith an empty proclamation to you that doesn't seek the giving of oneself, but rather the taking for oneself? I challenge us today as a church that we would have seasons of testings in our life to see that our love for the Lord Jesus is living and that it's active and that it's genuine, that it is pure, unadulterated, and is driven by the motive of the cross, Christ and Christ crucified. That God so loved the world that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All have stand and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That is Romans 3, 23 through 26. So I lay that challenge out before you today. And I plead with you to take it to the Lord personally. Because Christ alone is the only way truly that we can be saved. I want to invite you all to please stand. There will be leaders down front. Um, If you need the prayers of the church, our song of invitation is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb.